0: Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast.
1: Today I'm welcoming Casey Tigrett to the show. Casey is an author and spiritual director living in the Chicago area. He oversees the spiritual direction practice at Soul Care and is the author of three books including The Practice of Remembering and The Gift of Restlessness, which we'll be talking about here shortly. He is also the host of the Restlessness is a Gift podcast. Casey's passion is helping people pursue Jesus' way of spiritual transformation in the midst of everyday circumstances. You can find more information about and resources from Casey on his website, CaseyTigret.com, or on social media, his handle's at CaseyTigret. Alright, welcome to the show, Casey Tigret. Thanks so much for being here. Anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you?
2: Oh gosh, yeah, probably a lot of things. Um, besides doing podcasts and books and all the all the stuff we've already talked about, I, I really have a deep passion for people's transformation and and growth. And um, I also, you know, side things like I, I I golf a lot. Uh, because it's it's a great way to be in nature. It doesn't mean I'm any good at it. It's just a frequent hobby. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm a little bit of an unhealthy level of college football fan for. Uh, Michigan Wolverines. So, okay. those are some some other side things that I get into beyond just what we've already what we had already talked about. But uh, we were talking about we have a, sh- a bit of a shared background tradition. We both are new to a particular church movement, and so I've been in the Methodist Church for a while. I grew up in a faith wise in a Nazarene church, and then made the transition over into a Restoration Movement, Independent Christian Church stream uh, about twenty. 20 years ago or so have been somewhat on the fringes of that ever since. So, Mm -hmm. so if I can go here already, um, I'm thinking last
1: year, right? The, the TCU versus Michigan, what's been rough for you? Um, the disciples branch of the restoration movement was very excited about that
2: game. Not so much about the next. No, no. It, yeah, it was, it was a rough day in my house. It was, you know, (laughs) there was a lot of, there was sackcloth and ashes. There was a lot of mourning, but, but you know, that's the way it goes. If you, if you make giant defensive mistakes, people will beat you. That's just how it goes. So yeah, it, it was a bit of mourning, but we're, we've recovered, I think. Yeah. Well, you shared just a little
1: bit there about your faith journey. Uh, do you want to, are you willing to share a little bit more, dive in a little bit more what
2: that looked like in the past, what that looks like today? Sure. Yeah. My, my early years of, of faith really started in a, in a small town. I grew up in Southern West Virginia and we lived in a very small town. And my whole family attended this one church, and so we were the people that took up the first three pews. It was me, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, and my cousins, and and so a lot of my first steps of faith were there—Sunday um, school lessons and you know as much of the liturgy as I would pay attention to. And and then my mm-hmm. parents actually volunteered to be leaders of the youth group, and I think that was the first time I got to see. A more granular view of what it looked like to do the interpersonal work of helping people develop faith. And mm-hmm. so it was to, I mean, they were doing this as a, as a thing that they were passionate about. And I was six, seven years old at the time. So I had all these, I had all these older brothers and sisters who just looked after me and taught me things. And, uh, would wake up some Saturday mornings and there'd be some random teenager sleeping on our couch because they got kicked out. And Hmm. so it it taught me a great deal about compassion um, in those early years. And then from there, we we left that church and went to a Nazarene church. So a bit of a difference in the expression of faith. Southern Nazarene churches are far more kind of fire and brimstone, Hmm. a little bit different in their theology and view of things like the end times and and preaching. And so from the Stoic organ music to the, you know, rolling piano and the when the battle's over, we shall wear the crown kind of hymns and things like that. So my faith took a big shift there from more of a this thing that we did when we were together to that's when I started to take seriously the idea of a personal faith. Like this has an Mm. impact on my own ethics, morality, what I read. Um, but I also have always had this bit of a rebellious streak in me, um, when it comes to the Enneagram, if your listeners know about that, I yeah. identify yeah. as a four. And so I've okay. always had this romantic, independent streak. independent streak in me. And so so I, I, any faith tradition I've been a part of, I've always kind of lived on the periphery of it, uh, mm-hmm. open to being thoughtful about other postures and other expressions of the Christian faith. And so, but that, those years in the Nazarene church were my most formative. And so that's where I grew the most. And, and so in recent years, I've been going through, and I was writing a bit about this the other day, personally, the idea of blessing something and leaving it. Hmm. Um, that there are these traditions and things that form and shape us that are key and we wouldn't be who we are with God's self and others now without them. Yeah, and yet at the same time we know that they're not places in which we can continue to live, and so learning hmm. how to bless something that was good to us early, and then still leave it for another far country that we feel like we've been invited to, uh, and I feel like that's been the work of a a lot of the last you know ten to twenty years of my life is how do I examine what has brought me to this point in my faith. And then how do I, how do I adopt a critical realism about it to say, Mm -hmm. yes, there are good things there. And yes, there are some things that, that need to be dismantled and then take that forward into what is the divine inviting me to do as a spiritual director, as a pastor, as a writer, how do I express these things? So, uh, and it's still a developing story. So my faith story is, you know, there are still blank pages to the right of where we are today.
1: Absolutely, you know. If I may ask a question already, um, yeah, I'm curious. I, I've been thinking about this recently, as we shared, or I shared with you before we started recording. Myself, I grew up independent Baptist. Um, certainly a different, certainly a different faith tradition than the context I find myself in currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, like perhaps you and many, there's a strong bit of disillusionment and disgust Mm. with that tradition. I don't know if it's perhaps the wisdom of years or, or, you know, distance that I've become, I don't want to, I don't want to say grateful for the entire thing, but I can certainly appreciate some things. Like you said, you use the word, you know, I don't remember how you framed it, bless.
2: Yeah. To bless something and then to leave it behind.
1: Right. And I just wanted to like, how helpful is that? Something that just comes with with uh, wisdom or experience or distance, because um, I think I, I think for me at least it's been much healthier. You know, as you say, kind of blessing something uh, for me, finding some value and, and recognizing some elements of value, and then saying, "Hey, I'm going to leave. I'm leaving that behind." You know, certainly this is kind of lessened. Culturally, societally speaking, but certainly the the evangelical movement was very strong mm. a couple of years ago, three years ago. Who knows, right? And I wonder, like, how what what would you say to folks like that who find themselves, you know, again as I was, very much disgusted and disillusioned uh, and disappointed with their their home tradition, so to speak.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's an, I think that's a wonderful way to to talk about it because. With even with that phrase to bless it and then leave it, it feels like an easy mechanism. Hmm. Um, There's not a time frame on that, Mm -hmm. nor is there a set of steps. So, some things are left behind because they're dangerous and because Mm -hmm. they're abusive. And so, I am, I would not in any way tell someone to bless their experience of whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual abuse. In a religious mm-hmm. community, um, to bless unhealthy doctrine that has made them think of themselves or others as less than as anything less than fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, created Creatively and beautifully and wonderfully and called beloved. I mean, anything that makes you brings you to that place where you deny those things. I I think you don't need to. I'm not asking to you to bless that, but part of blessing can say, "What did we learn? What are we learning from this?" And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the one the one principle from I think some Buddhism that has helped is the idea that everything is your teacher,
3: Hmm. and
2: Mm -hmm. It does not mean that we honor the teacher, but there is a gift that can be given by even the hardest things that we learn, and I hear that in in other places too. I actually hear it a little bit in Paul, <laughs> in Romans, yeah, which yeah. Uh, where he talks about how we rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces character, and character hope, and hope never disappoints. Um, that isn't an invitation to say suffering is good. That's an invitation to say this can be a teacher. And so I've learned a lot from looking at my faith foundations and the churches mm-hmm. that raised me and taught me and the people in the communities that raised me and taught me and to look at them with a bit of grace uh, because some of them were doing what they, the best that they could at the time with the information they had. Uh, some of them had intents that were misaligned and evil. And so right. what I didn't want to do is sweep those people in with the other folks who were maybe innocently uh, following along and maybe, and maybe now have done the same thing I've done. They've critiqued it and moved on. I, I don't know. Uh, so I would say there's not an easy map to it. It's not yeah. sanctifying suffering in any way. But simply saying the things, everything that's happened to us has the, John O'Donohue, the brilliant Irish poet says, everything that Mm -hmm. happens to us has the potential to deepen us. And I think that's true. And as a person who operates as a spiritual director, some of what I'm doing is helping people mine the wisdom of their experience to find where God or the divine, whatever term you're comfortable with, Mm -hmm. where they, that being that power, that presence shows up, and what is it offering? What are you being offered from that? and how do you leave behind the people and the the practices and all of that, and yet bless it as something that built you for what's happening next. Um, I would say if this, if a person is is having this active conversation, definitely it's it's advisable not to do it by yourself, uh, yeah, as yeah. a, a spiritual director or a counselor. Is usually absolute, usually essential for doing that blessing and leaving well. And, and that's not just a com- that's not a commercial because I am a spiritual director. Right. That's more of a this is how I've experienced it personally. Yeah. That person who can shepherd you along the blessing and the leaving because sometimes it takes a while. Yeah,
1: if I can lean into that question about um, suffering, I- I'm curious about that because I've seen. You know, just broadly speaking, in the in the broader culture, uh, I've seen some I've seen some resistance and pushback around the idea that suffering must be avoided at all costs. I mean, I'm I'm certainly in the in the frame of thought that um, you know, I, I like you would not bless suffering or think that suffering could be redemptive. Um, but it does seem that you know, I do wonder if culturally of late, we've taken too much of a resistance to seeing any, you know, like you said, suffering can be a teacher, you know, is it dangerous to avoid suffering at all costs kind of thing?
2: I, I think there is some nuance in that. I think there is, there is unjust suffering. Right, right. That is suffering we experience at the design of someone or some kind of system. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that is handled differently than the suffering that comes to us just by virtue of us being human and being with other people um the suffering of watching the suffering of working through a marriage and marital conflicts that are exacerbated by the fact that we're both human and we get in each right. other's way, right um, the suffering that comes in raising a child. And watching them go from stage to stage, and just realizing slowly over time how absolutely z- how you have absolutely zero control huh. over the outcomes. Yeah, you have some planning, you have some intention, you have some you have some things that you do in order to shape and build an environment of health and hope. But you, we are not. We The sooner a parent surrenders the outcomes and simply tries to live in each day, I think the better that could be. But there's a suffering to that. Uh, there's a suffering to watching your, your kid move into areas that you, you know are going to be difficult for them, and they're going to experience suffering there, but also knowing the only way for them to learn how to stay out of it is to experience it. And you just try to provide as much of a safety net. It's Like bowling, you know, you take your your kid bowling, you put the bumpers down. Mm -hmm. You know the ball is going to go wherever it's going to go. You know, you offer the bumpers that you can. And so, I I mean, I think there is a move. I think there's a healthy move in our culture to root out and diminish unjust suffering. Right, Um, right. But there's also a journey of learning I call this suffering, and I want to avoid it. Can I actually avoid it, or is this just mm. a part? Is my avoiding suffering causing suffering life. for others too? You know, in in the in in the quest for me to get out of this, am I putting someone else in it? Uh, hmm. So, taking that perspective, um, coming back to that great commandment of the key thing for all of us in our in our life, in our spirituality, in our existence is to love. That's with, That which is beyond us, to love the divine and to love ourselves and each other with everything that we have. And so when su- reducing my suffering adds to the suffering of others,
0: mm-hmm. I, I'm
2: not living within that true, deep, lasting purpose for humanity. And that causes a whole different kind of suffering. And so there is kind of a wheel, kind of a cycle that we can get into. And mm-hmm. it seems like the only thing that dismantles it is figuring out, how do I embrace this for what it is? and have the uncomfortable love-hate relationship with it until I find the thing that's at the center, which is a lot of how I talk about restlessness. is mm-hmm. It's finding that thing at the center of this thing that we don't want to be a part of, and yet we have no choice. We end up there anyway.
1: Well, that provides a nice transition for me. Thank you. Uh, to talk about your book, The Gift of Restlessness. I, and I think the first question I have to ask is... I don't feel like restlessness. I've read the book. <laughs> I'm still leery that restlessness is a gift um maybe uh maybe talk about what inspired the book and why, without giving perhaps the whole thing away, you know why you're still on this idea that restlessness is a gift.
2: Sure, well, full disclosure. Uh, the irony of the title is not lost on me and Mm -hmm. the, the fact is that I don't, I don't search out or desire restlessness Hmm. either. Um, I think in a lot of ways, the book was my attempt to explain, I talk about books in writing, especially as trying to make sense of something, Hmm. um, usually first for the writer and then you find resonance with other people as you talk about it. Hey, I'm writing this book on restlessness and I think it's a gift. And they're like, oh, that sounds really weird and I don't agree with you. Okay, well, let me tell you about this thing. And then you start talking it out and they're like, oh, okay, okay, wait a minute, that makes sense. So it was in the first, first movements of it were me trying to make sense of something that I have dealt with my entire life, which is every six weeks, six months or so, I just have this sense that everything needs to change. Hmm. And this feeling of stuckness. And that can be your garden variety, very surface level stuff. Like I just decide I'm going to grow some facial hair and change up the way I look. And then my wife is like, you know, you know, you look terrible. (laughs) You've tried this for so many years and you can't do it. Uh, And in a loving way, of course. And so there's that or changing up a habit. And then you go from there to more um, deep and existential things like everything needs to change. And so I need to leave behind my faith or I need to leave behind my spouse or my job or my whatever. And so i really was trying to make sense of, and I've not had those later, not leaving faith entirely, believing forms mm-hmm. of faith, but I've not had the desire to leave my spouse or anything like that. But those restless periods can bring us to that place where we just feel like everything needs to change. Because what happens is we get to the place where we cannot go back to the way things used to be. right. An event happens, uh, a stage in life happens, whatever it might be. We cannot go back to the way things used to be. And yet we have no idea what it means to go forward. And we have no means to push that. Uh, and so we're just, we're really stuck in the present tense. And so the gift is in that moment, everything that we used to use to prop ourselves up and polish our ego and um, even even the ways that we we used God to sort of cover us in those moments That's stripped away. And the gift is we, we, we get to see ourselves very plainly in a naked light. And hmm. the gift is we then get to ask the real deep, serious questions of what is going on and what is there in the middle of this present tense that I'm stuck in that might actually be a gift might be something good. And so it's a, it's a teacher The restlessness is a gift we don't want, a teacher we don't want. And yet there are also things that we desperately need in order to move forward. So there's a few things that stood out to me in the book. I wanted to kind of hear and maybe
1: talk through some more with you. Um, I'm writing a note, a gift and a teacher we don't want Mm. uh, on restlessness here. Um, I am, I think you mentioned it here already in our conversation um, but talking about unhealthy images of God, um, mm. this is something that I think I've wrestled with, probably my own and my own faith, and I've certainly seen others wrestle with as well.
2: Um, talk
1: more about that as you can.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, images of God, I, I I feel like it's helpful sometimes to come down to the like granular picture of it like the basic definition of it and when i talk about images of god what we what we're talking about is the picture that we get in mind that helps us to understand something that we can't understand hmm. And so I'm very much of the opinion that is shared by some of the mystic writers is that if God were completely understandable, if our images, the way we describe God or the divine, were completely accurate 100%, that immediately means that the divine is no longer the divine anymore. Right. Uh, Because what we... Uh, the poet Wendell Berry actually says he has a poem called "The Mad Farmer Mad Farmer Liberation Front." He says, "Praise ignorance for what man does not know; it has not destroyed." Hmm. And I feel like that has some, some some overlap here. The moment that we completely, totally describe every detail of who God is, we have we've really destroyed the idea of of the divine or God, and so our images are just us getting close. And so metaphors or images for God just get us close, but they also shape how we live and how we respond. And so there are early images of God that help give us boundaries, foundation, um, but they also have a limitation to them. So I think of things like God as warrior. And in certain ways, God as warrior is a very safe feeling metaphor that God will fight our battles for us. And there are certain you know worship songs in culture that that have that built into it that you know God is warrior, God fights our battles for us, et cetera, but then we start thinking about violence, we start thinking about war, we start thinking about Jesus and how he lived the opposite of that, and suddenly, the question is, how far does that metaphor really go, and can i can I live by it and if I live by God is warrior then do I then become a warrior myself and start expressing that in some unhealthy ways? And so then the time comes when that image that once gave us life and hope suddenly then falls apart and it no longer works in the way that it used to. And so that's what I mean by, you know, the changing of the images of God. Uh, The one that I work with the most, and especially when I was working with students, um, is the idea of God as father, that's a repeated image and it mm-hmm. has some beauty to it, especially in early stages of faith and sometimes in, in the middle later stages of faith. But for a person who had a terrible earthly father, there's a disconnect there. Right. And especially when you start talking about things, and I don't want to go too theology nerd here, but when you start talking about God as father, and then you start talking about the theories of the atonement- hmm Suddenly, you have God is my dad and God wants to kill me. Yeah. But thankfully, you know, Jesus almost becomes. I heard uh, the writer William Paul Young speak on this. He said, at that point, Jesus almost becomes the mom who's standing between the child and the enraged, mm. abusive father.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, there comes a moment where you cannot live with that, right. that image anymore. Right. And so, what I find in the restlessness is we are convicted that we have to leave this. This image of God behind, we can't live with it anymore. And yet, sometimes we build the entire content of our faith on that particular image. Mm. Mm-hmm. And what happens is we've mistaken the telescope for the stars. Mm. It was never about whether or not God was Father, it was about that's our way of engaging with God, self, and others in the world. And there are other ways to do that, there are other creative ways to do that. And they usually end up feeling really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I in the book, I I use the title "The Divine" more often than I do just the word "God." Right, um, right. Some people feel really uncomfortable about that, like it feels too airy fairy or or whatever. But the name God has some connections to it. It's even that name is is right. a translation that we use to describe a reality that we can't really describe fully, and so the divine feels like a term that makes more sense right now, or, you know, God is God is healer or God is, you know, you can just stack up all of the images. Um, Restlessness usually happens when we feel like we're getting ready to release, or we're being invited to release an image of God and move into a new one. And I find that most people are not, they're not wrestling with leaving the image behind really at the core. They're not wrestling with that. It's that there's this whole group of people who are connected to that image. There's a community of people that they, that a person thinks, if I show up and I don't say God, but say the divine, are they still going to be my people? Right. Am I still going to have community? Or are they going to be like, you're one of those wishy-washy whatever people, you know, and slowly move them out of the circle. And so we're way more afraid of losing our community than our ideas. Absolutely.
1: I think what makes it hard, from my perspective at least, is that in some faith communities, that metaphor has been lifted up to the point where, you know, the metaphor isn't recognized as such. The metaphor is everything. And then when it is questioning the metaphor, it's as if you're questioning the whole shebang, um, you know, thinking about deconstruction, broadly speaking. But I'm intrigued by that kind of your your signpost if I can use that metaphor of, you know, that restlessness is a sign of something seeking to change or, or growth or shift within, you know, the person of faith.
2: Yeah. Well, restlessness, I, I, th- I think too often deconstruction is, gets described as people leaving the faith. Right. Capital F. Right. Right. And I don't see that being the case. What I see it being is people leaving a form of faith, lowercase f. Mm -hmm. And people who don't care about their faith don't deconstruct it. (laughs) Absolutely. They either stop practicing it or they continue to practice it and just double down on the stuff that makes sense. And so you either get agnostics, an agnostic posture or an atheistic posture, or you get Pharisees. Right. And I think that's where we're living right now is within this tension and and I think there are people I think there are times if we truly for people who, who let me put it this way for people that I've walked with in deconstruction periods mm-hmm. there are seasons of agnosticism. Yeah, yeah. 100%. There are seasons of even maybe atheism like right. I just don't if this yeah. is the image I yep. cannot believe in God anymore. Right. And I don't know that that God exists. But I think seeing them as seasons and knowing that we all are on this, we're all these evolving spiritual beings. Like we're mm-hmm. always changing, always. We're constantly changing. And to know that belief, unbelief, indifference is part of that whole cycle, uh, especially for people who are listening to this who are, who are pastors or, or spiritual leaders of communities, people are, are going around a spiral, yeah, and they are moving from strong foundational belief to questioning to reassessing. It's constantly happening. And so our job is to try and help, just help put the bumpers down and give them yeah, that's some space helpful. in which to do that. I think that's helpful just to hear as a clergy person myself,
1: because um, I've certainly recognized in my own quote unquote ministry career, you know, there's some, some times where I'm like, well, I don't know about this. Um, you know, and then of late, I feel like I'm like super, I feel like I'm super gung-ho spiritual and I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> um, so that's helpful to be reminded. I'm also, you know, you're kind of bringing up memories of my own quote unquote deconstruction, reconstruction period. Um, you know, and I remember like, for me, this was for me, um, you know, growing up independent Baptist where we were very much like we didn't believe even everyone in our churches or Bible colleges were saved. Right. And I just kind of remember doing the math being like, you know, 90% of the world's going to hell. And I was just like, I probably shared this before, but for me, it's just like, I can't, I can't believe in that kind of God. Like, you know, speaking of Mm -hmm. a metaphor or not so much a metaphor, but you know, a, a concept, right. Of God. Um, so yeah, in kind of in that moment, in that time period, I can't, I became agnostic in a way. I I never went quite to atheist where I was like, does not exist. But I certainly was like, I don't know. I don't know if uh, God exists. And certainly, you know, maybe let's, maybe let's shift it in this direction. For clergy, especially right now, who have just wrestled with um, COVID, you know, I don't know about you, Casey, but I feel like in these last few months, I kind of like have moments where I think back about how rough it actually was going through COVID. And I'm just, I'm really shook. Um, and when I think about how hard it was in my family, how hard it was in ministry. And I know for many pastors, I'm sure who, who dealt with things even more challenging than I had to do, are wrestling with a bit of perhaps agnostic Agnosticism or atheism, literally or metaphorically, on their own. What do you say to those folks? I mean, what? I, maybe that's not the right question, but what's your thoughts for someone who finds themselves in that position?
2: Yeah, yeah. the The book, The Gift of Restlessness, actually very much looks different because there was a version of the book that I had written in twenty nineteen, and didn't nothing came of it and so i put it away for a while and then as we were in the middle of pandemic lockdowns and shifts uh i brought it back out not only because there were some bigger universal themes of restlessness but also there were some smaller uh, particular themes in my own life in the lives of other people that i was witnessing and so very much the book is born and I didn't want, I didn't write, it's not a quote unquote pandemic book, but nothing mm-hmm. that we talk about from now, from 2020 on is going to not have, is going to be right. um, free of that, of that right. implication. Uh, so I think, I think first and foremost, there's a permission giving that we have to, we have to undergo as clergy and just give ourselves permission to go, yeah, that was as bad as we think. Hmm. Put the put the debates about science and vaccinations and and maybe even politics, uh, because our political system was was racing our fears of global pandemic, and just give ourselves permission to say this was this was what we thought it was, uh, but also to know that there are things that were born in us, ideas we had, thoughts that occurred to us. In the middle of those lockdowns, in the middle of those pandemic discussions, that are vital to us moving forward. Hmm. So, the organization I work with called Soul Care. We we tend to the soul health of leaders of churches and parachurches and mm-hmm. non for profits, and we did a bit of a conversational, like a listening tour of different. Mm-hmm organization leaders and pastors. And we came away with a few things that people had realized during pandemic. One of them was, there's just a ruthless refusal to go back to the way things used to be. Mm -hmm. So friends of mine who were at very high-paced ministry jobs got locked down with their family and they they sort of looked around and they were like, these people are awesome. (laughs) And I never see them. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. And so you have people transitioning, taking pay cuts and I get that this is this is super privileged what I'm about to say. Right. But they're taking pay cuts, taking, you know, lesser roles so that they can have a more balanced uh presence with their family or with their friends. There's a deeper call for things like Formation, spiritual practices, things that ground us we we realized I think how ungrounded we were, yeah, how little silence solitude played in our lives, and then there's a holistic a holistic piece, and the only way i mean for me, the way that it came out is one of the things my wife and I did during pandemic was we started doing yoga and hmm. um and it was so incredibly helpful. But it also showed me how, even still as a person who knows this is the case, how disconnected my body was from my spiritual life. Mm. And so giving ourselves the permission to know, yeah, this was as bad, this, this period of time was as bad as we think, but also to know that we received some insights. We received mm. some insights that we, yeah. that were valuable to us. Let's not let go of those and let's yeah. courageously pursue them because it's going to be really, really easy. And it has been, and I've watched yeah. it. It's been really, yeah. really easy just to go back to, oh, we're right. finally back to normal, as if right. that was ever normal. Right? Uh, we had a better, a different sense of what normal really was, and it's time, for, I think it's time for us to regain that. And, and that may bring about a, a bit of restlessness. We can't go back to the way things were in 2019, but we also... We also know that we have no idea how to put these new insights into practice. So here we are, in between. We can't go home, but we can't stay here. So, so what do we do now?
1: Yeah, I imagine working in the independent Christian tradition. You're probably familiar with Steve Cuss, who's also in that yeah tradition. He's kind of my we're sort of neighbors here across the city. Um, something he talks about in his work is, you know, as a former hospital chaplain saying that, you know, when someone came into the hospital, those same kind of family dynamics that existed, you know, 10 hours ago before the the heart attack or the sudden stroke or whatever, they're bringing those dynamics into the hospital with them. Um, I myself worked as a hospital chaplain, interestingly enough, during COVID. So I saw some of those dynamics in play. Wow. Um, but I, as I think about kind of my ministry during COVID and I think about like some of those unhealthy dynamics that were present within my own life and how those were kind of amplified, like for me, you know, a realization I had that I've started to just like, um, uh, implement is like, I don't make enough money to support my family, especially in the, in the Denver Metro, uh, economy, um, and the, that kind of my quote unquote sacrifices for ministry, like I've been bearing the brunt and my family's been bearing the brunt. Um, so it was really interesting to kind of see that, and you know, reflect I imagine you've probably seen that, uh, like you alluded to, what are some other examples think the come to mind for, for clergy or for pastors?
2: Yeah. The one that comes immediately to mind is during these lockdowns, we built ways for people to be a part of our community without being physically present. Mm -hmm. And so some kind of online, either a Facebook live kind of thing, or maybe if a church with different resources has a digital space, an online church, and that had all been happening, you know, as a, as a side project of a lot of churches that I know, larger churches that I know, they've been developing like online campuses. And some of them right. had the resources to have an online campus pastor or whatever. What happened with with pandemic is are the people who attend our communities, some of them, we gave them the permission to say, you can be a part of this without ever being here. Mm-hmm. And so that changes the metric, I think, for a lot of folks as to what is success. Mm. Uh, Numerical success. Mm -hmm. Is that still something we can depend on? Uh, And it also says, when I see someone show up in person to our community, I know they want to be there Hmm. because they don't have to. Mm
3: -hmm. They
2: could eat French toast in their pajamas and watch pre-recorded or streamed worship and a sermon and and call it church. And, and really truthfully, the difference is the chair they're sitting in for right. a lot of people. If right. they're not involved in some other way, that's, it's just the seat that you're in, uh, yeah. and the distance you drove to get there. So when people do show up, they, they are making a statement about this is my commitment to our, to our community, but also to know that that commitment level is, the commitment levels changed. I was listening to an interview. someone was giving about I forget who it was. I always wanted to cite where I can, but someone was talking about talking to a someone who ran a concert venue, mm-hmm. and they said, "Every show that we sell out, so we sell every ticket in the house, we usually have between 79 and 80 percent of those people who actually show up." And so I think there's a commitment change. In people since pandemic, yeah, and so as all, and I think this has always been the case, but I think it's just been amplified. Um, I think we as clergy just need to hold loosely the idea of attendance, Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: just hold it loosely, and let it let it be something that we notice, but not something that keeps us up at night. And I realize that that is connected in a lot of clergy communities to right. people who show up are giving and giving drives right. other things. And especially like we were talking about livelihood. Um, so there's an implication there, but that has, that has all changed. Charitable giving has changed tremendously. And I think there's a generational piece to that as well as a, um, as well as a post-pandemic piece to that. And so, again, we can't go back to times when charitable giving was more dependable, but we have no idea what what it means to go forward. So we're in this restless moment. And one of the big questions that I ask in the book is the idea of, do I have enough? Mm-hmm. Is there enough? And yeah. enough can apply to finances. It can apply to success, can apply to all sorts of different relationships, all sorts of different things. But that that's the question we if we hold loosely the idea of attendance and and finances, then the question we have to ask ourselves in that restless moment is, is there enough? Hmm. And what do I believe enough? How would I define that word? Yeah. And I think it's contextual. I yep. think it I think it's for each person to to take into a prayerful conversation and say, yeah, what is enough? When do I know? How do I know? Yeah. Well, this conversation has kind
1: of been all over the map, so I appreciate you. <laughs> it sounds about right for me, honestly. <laughs> I, I appreciate you engaging with me, and I hope it's helpful for our listeners. Let me ask you one other question here from the book before we take a break. Uh, you, you had a line in the book about God trusting us mm. and what that means for us. And I, you know, again, growing up independent Baptist, I think there's still this kind of like, you know, speaking of unhealthy image of, I think you use this language in the book of like the rotten worm type of thing. And I remember, um, I think there's language in a hymn of, you know, for such a worm as I, um, was it at the cross? I think. Yep. I'm really going deep in my hymnology there. That's a B side.
2: You're bringing that stuff back (laughs) for me.
1: (laughs) But I mean, that, that really, uh, stirred something within me. Um, share more about what you mean with
2: that yeah yeah typically i that conversation happens in the context of talking with people about what what they're called to do uh what they sense is their calling or their purpose mm-hmm. and typically that comes out when we're talking about decisions and i get i get the sense that a person is hesitant about making a decision because they feel like they're going to go, go against what god Right has for them or what's, what's good. And the decision is, so the decision is never between like, should I rob a liquor store or should I be a social (laughs) worker? Like it's never that dynamic because that's a lot, that's easy, right? Um, it's between two things that really are kind of central to who the person is. There are things that fall within that great invitation to love god self and others with everything we have they're things that are well grounded in redemptive recreative work and so my thought is growing up in a church that was very much about you're called to one thing Mm -hmm. and if you find that calling you win the gold medal you can do other things god will still love you but you only get like a bronze yes yes and so i've i've had to deconstruct that a bit over the years. And the one thing that has helped me with that is really thinking about my, the doctrine of humanity. And I know that the idea that humans are, you know, original sin and total depravity, those things are there to try and explain evil. Mm -hmm. They're also there to try and move a, a system of salvation along. Um, I don't hold to those anymore. Those are images that I have found unhelpful and also, they are. They seem deeply contrary to how God created humanity in the beginning, hmm. uh, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that mm-hmm. we are called very good, and and that is never redacted. Mm-hmm. And so, when I'm talking to someone who's like, what is my purpose? What should I do? I usually ask them, do you trust God? And this, is, this feels like a setup, and spiritual directors right. are supposed to do a setup. Right. So, I'm kind of like, I probably shouldn't do this, but... But I do, I lead with that because that's, for a lot of people of faith, that's a a question like, oh, yeah, so I do. I trust God because God is in control. And then when the question becomes, does God trust you? It's bringing them back to the idea that you have within you these gifts, abilities, and desires, and they have been given to you. Hmm. And so you now have this stewardship of this experience, education, training, suffering that has been transformed into character and character that's become hope. You have all these things. Do you believe God trusts you to exercise those things? And I'm usually, usually that brings them to kind of a restless moment because they're like, I can't go back and unhear that question. Uh, but I have no idea what that means to apply it. And I, I think a lot of times it means you actually have a choice. You actually have a, you are participating with God. And there are, there's language of that in the New Testament and talking about the co-laborers with Christ. Like we're, we're side by side. We're in this thing together mm-hmm. and God has entrusted you with a life in a family. Uh, Dallas Willard used to call, uh, he'd talk about purpose as the work God has left for you to do in the world. Hmm. Which I think is tremendous, but yeah. wow. Like what a level of trust. Like I left this unfinished so that you could you could be a part of it. You could partner with me to see it done. And so that's where that question comes from. And I, I have to ask my, so everything that's in there, I have to ask myself that yeah, on a regular yeah. basis. Like, I don't know what I should do here. Well, do you trust God? Yeah, yeah I do. You know, how I've been made, okay, does God trust you with this? Hmm. Mm. Hmm. If I say yes, then I have a, I have a perspective now that I can act on. And that changes us, that shapes us, that forms us to actually, to actually take that seriously and then act on it. Yeah.
1: Well, this has been a great conversation. Let's take a quick break. Um, The book is The Gift of Restlessness, a spirituality for unsettled seasons. Certainly we've all been through one and it kind of makes me want to read the book again. Um, Let's take a quick break though. And we'll come back with some closing questions. All right. We're back with Casey Tigrit. And, uh, I always tell folks you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. So if you're Pope for a day, what do you want to do with that day?
2: Oh, if I'm Pope for the day, I really, I really want to spend, I want to spend time with people. That's looking at Pope Francis, I think I would do what he does. I mean, there's mm-hmm. just such, in not everything, I mean, there's some places that I I don't know what's going on, but I just, I sense in him this desire to be with, to be with real people. I would want, I would want to dismantle as much of that, like, distance mm-hmm. as there, as there seems to be and, and really reconnect with people.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, a theologian or historical
2: Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? Oh, gosh. Uh, it's a, it's a bit of a tie for me. Uh, Henry Nowen would probably be one person that I would I would want to spend some time with, and also Saint Bridget uh the Celtic tradition. Hmm. Uh, I think that'd be a great conversation. I'd love to sit down and have a pint with her. Awesome. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? oh my i i think I think on one hand history will remember that there was a group of people trying to do the best with the information they had at the time hmm. and I think history will also see that instead of working together we decided to take up sides and my hope is they'll there will be some sort of great reconnection um that has yet to happen or that may happen after we are gone but I'm, I think history will say there were some people trying to do the best they could with what they knew at the time, but there were also this great movement where we we chose sides and we went to battle hmm. more fervently maybe than ever with hmm. each other. What are your hopes for the future of Christianity? My hope is that pastors and clergy and leaders will really take seriously the fact that spiritual formation is the gospel. Hmm. It is the good news. It's not the second half of it, uh, the idea that you might be transformed into the into the image and likeness of Jesus in the everyday life you live. I, I think I my hope is that the church will recover that, uh, and my hope is that we will be pushed to recover it by unsustainable circumstances. Hmm. Um, we talked before we came on about declines in different mm-hmm. traditions. great report by Ryan Burge, who's a tremendous researcher. Yeah, uh, To me, it all is rooted in the fact, because it's both on progressive and conservative sides. Yep. Th- to me, the great hope is that we will realize that a lot of that is happening because we're not offering the compelling story of transformation. Yeah. And that will yeah. recover that. That's my great hope. Yeah. Well, good stuff. I wish
1: I wanted to ask you a couple more questions, but um, don't want to keep you here any longer. Um,
2: where can people find out more about you and connect with your work? Absolutely. Well, thank you. I'm I'm so grateful that you, you had me in this conversation and asked tremendous questions and invited me to, to talk. My best place to find things for me will be my website, caseytigret.com. Um, anyone interested in working with, you know, if you're a clergy leader and you're looking for soul care resources, uh, soulcare.com would be another place. You can find some of the things that I do. And then I'm on social media, not Twitter so much anymore, but, uh, Facebook and, uh, Instagram at Casey Tigrett is the best way to find me. So happy to have a chat there too. Awesome. Well, I always leave folks with
1: a word of peace. So may God's peace be with you.
0: Thanks, man. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. Do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. (laughs) The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul roe Thanks, and go in peace.